0: The reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, February 23rd, 2023. I'm your reader, Janet Griffith. Starting on today's front page, our first headline reads Donahue Guilty in Deputy Shooting. Chicago Man Faces Up to 107 Years for Robbery, Attempted Murder of Deputy in 2021 by Trish Mahaffey. A Lynn County jury Tuesday convicted a Chicago man of 10 charges, which could result in up to 107 years in prison for robbing a Casey store in Coggin on June twentieth, 2021, and shooting a deputy seven times. Stanley L. Donahue, 38, laughed when the 10 guilty verdicts were read. As he left the courtroom in handcuffs, he looked at Lynn County Sheriff's Deputy William Halverson and said, it should have been worse than it was, and cursed at him. After Donahue was taken out, Halverson just shook his head. Donahue was convicted of attempted murder of a peace officer, two charges of first-degree robbery, willful injury causing serious injury, attempt to elude, two charges of false imprisonment, trafficking in stolen weapons, disarming a peace officer, and felon in possession of a firearm. The jury deliberated for about three hours Monday and one hour Tuesday, following about seven days of testimony. Sixth Judicial District Judge Christopher Bruns said sentencing would be set at a later time. What do they say? It's like water off a duck's butt, Halverson told media waiting for him to respond to what Donahue said after the verdict. Halverson said he hasn't been sitting around thinking of Donahue while waiting for this trial. He's just been a speed bump in my life, Halverson added. Halverson, with his wife, her mother, and sister standing nearby, said he regarded Donahue's remarks as just trying to get in the last word. The Lynn County citizens got it right today, Halverson said. He's going to do his time in prison and I'll be living my life as a free man. He said he was never worried about the defense's argument that there was another possible suspect or that Halverson's identification of Donahue was not reliable because Halverson is white and Donahue is black, as a defense expert testified during trial. Part of me wanted to jump up and scream, but I've worked the past some 15 years in prisons and jails, Halverson said. I treat everyone the same because that's the way we should do. I understand that's the defense's job. That was the guy I looked at, square in the eyes, he said. Halverson said his heart goes out to the former Casey's employees, Jacob Christensen, now 22, and Maddie Stepanek, 19, who were forced into the store cooler during the robbery. They showed a lot of courage, Halverson said. Halverson was asked if being shot seven times in his hip and leg, going through the painful recovery, and undergoing surgery to insert a rod in his leg and screws in his left knee changed his thoughts about his job. Yes, it definitely told me this was the right job for me, Halverson said. Halverson, during the trial, said his injuries included a broken left thigh bone, vertebrae, and both hips, and damage to his lungs and torso. He also had contact injuries, bruising and abrasions, from bullets penetrating the protective vest he was wearing at the time. During the interview Tuesday, Halverson became emotional when he talked about being glad it was him that night, and not a mom, who encountered Donahue. If it was someone else, I don't know what would have happened, he said. I love this job and wouldn't do anything else. I'll do it until the day I die, whether that's tomorrow or 60 years from now. Lynn County Attorney Nick Maybanks said this verdict was a huge relief for him. The jury did the right thing, Maybanks said. Of course, you always worry, but this was a rock-solid case. Also on today's front page is this article. Bill with high bars for CO2 pipelines advances. House bill faces uncertain fate in Senate as ethanol industry says it spells ruin by Caleb McCullough. Dozens of landowners and activists Tuesday swarmed the Iowa Capitol asking lawmakers to ban eminent domain authority for proposed carbon dioxide pipelines as lawmakers advanced a bill that opponents said would be a de facto ban on the projects and the bane of the state's ethanol industry. House lawmakers advanced House File 368 out of a subcommittee with only Republican support. The bill would require CO2 pipeline companies to obtain 90% of the miles along their path through voluntary easements before being granted eminent domain powers to force an easement. The bill would also place a moratorium on projects until the Federal Pipeline and Hazardous Material Safety Administration develops new rules that govern the hazardous pipelines. On top of that, companies would need to be in line with all local zoning ordinances and obtain permits in all other states along the pipeline's path before being granted a permit from the Iowa Utilities Board. Landowners would also have more opportunity for compensation if eminent domain is exercised on their land. The bill is signed by 22 Republican House lawmakers, including Speaker Pat Grassley. Activists gathered for a rally alongside sympathetic lawmakers. They said the House bill was an improvement on the permitting and eminent domain process for CO2 pipelines, but they said it doesn't go far enough. Kim Junker, a landowner from Butler County, said she wants to see a complete ban on eminent domain power for the projects. Our legislature created the law that gave the Iowa Utilities Board the power to use eminent domain, and the legislature can take it away, Junker said. If the bill setting a 90% threshold goes forward, Junker said, it should be set at 90% of parcels, not miles. Measuring by miles disadvantages small landowners, she said. Other lawmakers have proposed more drastic measures. Senator Jeff Taylor, Republican of Sioux Center, has filed bills that would ban eminent domain authority for the projects, restrict surveying practices for the pipelines, and require pipelines requesting eminent domain to disclose investors. Taylor said at the rally it has been an uphill climb to get his bill scheduled for public hearings, but he said the House bill would be an improvement. If we can't get a total ban on eminent domain, we would still have a win if that House bill moves forward, as is currently written, Taylor said. The House bill would potentially slow or stop the permitting of three carbon capture pipelines being proposed in the state. Summit Carbon Solutions' Midwest Carbon Express would stretch across 680 miles in northern, western, and central Iowa. Navigator CO2 Ventures' Heartland Greenway proposes 900 miles from the northwest to southeast corners of the state. Wolf Carbon Solutions has proposed a pipeline that covers four counties, including Lynn, in eastern Iowa. The projects are planned to capture CO2 emitted by ethanol plants and send it to reservoirs deep underground in North Dakota and Illinois. They would take advantage of federal tax credits and open ethanol to new markets. The Iowa Renewable Fuels Association is a key supporter of the pipelines and argues they are vital to the continued survival of ethanol production in the state. In a statement Monday, the organization's executive director, Monty Shaw, said the bill unfairly targets carbon dioxide capture pipelines over other liquid pipelines. This bill singles out for destruction the single most important technology we have to keep liquid fuels like ethanol competitive with electric vehicles in the rapidly growing low-carbon transportation markets, Shaw said. Jake Ketzner, a lobbyist for Summit Carbon Solutions, said at the committee hearing that the projects are a lifeline not only for ethanol but for Iowa agriculture. Why is our project so important? Because carbon capture makes ethanol competitive, not just for the next several years, but for decades to come, Ketzner said. The bill is now eligible for consideration in the Senate Judiciary Committee and Representative Steve Holt, Republican of Denison, who chairs the committee, said he was optimistic about it passing the House. Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitford did not indicate if the Senate would take it up. And our final item on today's front page, Marion, considering considering traffic cameras in response to police shortage. Cameras would monitor red light violations and speeding and could read license plates by Emily Anderson. The city of Marion would join Cedar Rapids in deploying red light and speed traffic cameras under a pitch by the Marion police chief that got a welcome reception by the city council during a work session Tuesday. Chief Mike Kitzmiller, who shared data about speeding and red light violations at some major intersections in the city, said traffic cameras would improve safety and help the department with its staffing shortage. Multiple council members said they were initially opposed to the idea of traffic cameras, but were surprised by the data and would be interested in seeing a formal proposal. It's pretty striking that we have a persistent, consistent, ongoing safety issue that needs to be mitigated, council member Grant Harper said. Council Steve Jensen said Marion has a reputation for being tough on speeding, and he wants to keep that reputation. The most common comments I get from citizens that talk to me is, what can we do to slow down traffic, Jensen said. Kitzmiller said that if traffic cameras are approved, they would likely be placed at the intersection of Highways 13 and 151 and the intersection of Highway 100 and East Post Road. Other camera, camera locations would be determined based upon statistical analysis of historic traffic patterns and current infractions or violations, according to a memo distributed to the council. The police department is also requesting a mobile speed unit that could be deployed across the city based on resident complaints. Marion Police borrowed a mobile traffic camera trailer from another city to gather data to present to the council. The camera monitored one lane of Highway 100 at the intersection with East Post Road from June 17th to June 24th. It counted 184 vehicles that ran the red light as well as 148 vehicles that were traveling more than 10 miles per hour over the speed limit. Between 2013 and 2022, there were 125 crashes at the intersection, 26 of which were caused by someone running a red light. One crash caused by running a red light was fatal, according to information Kitzmiller presented at the council meeting Tuesday. The cameras, if approved, would monitor for red light violations and speeding. Kitzmiller said he'd also like to have cameras with license plate reader capabilities to help police locate stolen vehicles or vehicles associated with wanted or missing persons and AMBER alerts. Kitzmiller also included in his presentation data about the department's staffing concerns and overtime accrual during the last year. The Marion Police Department needs 48 officers to be considered fully staffed, Kitzmiller said. Currently, the department has 43 officers. Of those 43, two are still in the police academy and three are on limited duty for various reasons, Kitzmiller miller said. During 2022, the department used overtime to meet the minimum staff requirement for 12% of patrol shifts. The purpose of traffic enforcement is to reduce accidents by deterring dangerous behaviors, Kitzmiller miller said, adding that while those two intersections tend to have a lot of traffic infractions, we simply don't have the resources to sit there 24 hours a day. Kitzmiller said he knows that some people are passionately opposed to traffic cameras, but he believes the pros outweigh the cons. It's a tool to use, it's effective, and it's an efficient way of doing things, Kitzmiller said. The council will meet in formal session Thursday, but traffic cameras are not on the agenda for action. Tom Dobbs, public information officer for the police department, said in an email, That Tuesday's presentation was merely a discussion item for the council to determine whether cameras are something they would like to consider pursuing or not based on our staffing shortages. Because the discussion has not yet been finalized into a proposal, Dobbs said it would be premature to comment on what the cost of the cameras and the schedule of implementation could look like. Marion Police made a similar request for traffic cameras in May, 2021, and the city council voted to have staff draft an ordinance for use of cameras but eventually rejected the proposal. In his 2021 request, Kitzmiller Miller named six intersections where cameras could be placed. Highway 151 and Highway 13, Highway 151 and Linair Avenue, Highway 151 10th Avenue and Eagleview Eagle Drive, Highway 100 and East Post Road, Highway 100 and Menards Lane, 7th Avenue and 31st Street. Now moving on to news from inside the paper, Hardin County OKs Two Crypto Mining Sites. Mining Store Now Has Sites in Grundy, Hardin, and Marshall Counties. By Aaron Jordan. Hardin County in north-central Iowa has approved two new cryptocurrency mining sites. The County Zoning Adjustment Board on January 24th signed two conditional use permits, allowing the mining store, headquartered in North Carolina, to install mining sites next to two electrical substations owned by Midland Power Cooperative. Each permit requires Mining Store to install noise-buffering material on the fences around the sites, provide $75,000 surety bonds for future decommissioning, and seek new permits each time the leases are renewed. Mining Store also must post emergency contact information on a prominent location at the Eldora site. Mining Store, which opened its flagship Bitcoin mining site in Grundy County in 2019, had originally requested rezoning of the parcels in Hardin County's Eldora, and Union Townships, from agricultural to manufacturing, but the county decided a conditional use permit would be sufficient. CEO J.P. Barrick, 25, of North Carolina, spoke with the Hardin County Board of Supervisors in January. Each site will include three modular structures stacked with computers that run around the clock to solve math problems that create new blocks of Bitcoin, the most common form of cryptocurrency worldwide. As each new block of Bitcoin is solved, mining operations like this get a payout. Cryptocurrency mining has raised concerns in Iowa and elsewhere because of how much electricity it uses. The White House reported in August the global electricity use for crypto mining was between 120 billion and 240 billion kilowatt hours per year, which is more than the total annual electricity use of some countries, including Argentina and Australia. This surge in demand is happening as the world is trying to reduce electricity consumption because of climate change. Each of the Hardin County sites would use 5 megawatts, the equivalent to powering powering 4,000 to 9,000 homes, according to the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. But supporters of crypto mining say they are adding resilience to the power grid by using surplus wind and solar energy that's often wasted if utilities don't have battery storage. At times of peak energy needs, the mining sites would halt operations, giving the utility more capacity for other customers. Bill proposes more work searches for benefits. GOP proposal comes after new law that reduces unemployment aid to 16 weeks by Tom Barton. A year after enacting stricter requirements for receiving unemployment benefits, a new Republican bill would require Iowans to conduct more job searches to get them. An Iowa Senate Workforce Subcommittee Tuesday advanced Senate Study Bill 1159. The bill would require a person applying for unemployment benefits to complete four to six job searches a week to earn benefits, depending on the number of job openings published by the state's workforce agency. The more jobs available, the more work searches one must complete. To maintain eligibility for unemployment benefits, Iowans currently are required to complete four re-employment activities each week, three of which must include job applications, according to Iowa Workforce Development. To most people, if you're unemployed and asked to do four, five, or six job search requirements a week, that's not a big ask, said bill sponsor and committee chair Senator Adrian Dickey, Republican of Packwood. Dickey said the intent is to build off last year's law and get Iowans back to work sooner. Unemployed workers in Iowa now receive 10 fewer weeks of state unemployment benefits under a new law that took effect last year. The law reduced the length of state unemployment benefits from 26 to 16 weeks, making Iowa just the fourth state with 16 weeks or fewer of state unemployment benefits. The new law also changes the requirements for taking a job that pays less than the unemployed Iowans' previous job. Republicans touted the new law as a way to encourage Iowans to take jobs sooner and to lower taxes on businesses, which are used to fund the state's unemployment trust fund. Democrats and labor groups argue it attacks workers who lose their jobs through no fault of their own and who may lack childcare or transportation to a new job. Work search requirements may be waived if the person is temporarily unemployed and expected to be recalled by a former employer within a reasonable time frame. In addition, the work search requirement is waived for state-approved workforce training. Dickey's bill, though, would remove language allowing the employer to request an extension to waive job search requirements for up to two weeks if work is not available at the conclusion of a temporary layoff due to unforeseen circumstances beyond the employer's control. The bill bill defines work search as applying for a job by submitting a resume or application to a potential employer, interviewing for a job, or taking a civil service or military aptitude exam. Dickey, though, said the bill likely will be amended to align with existing departmental practice for satisfying the weekly search for work requirement. At least half the work searches must be from a list of of known available jobs within a 50-mile radius of the worker's home in fields in which they have experience or identified an interest. The bill requires Iowa Workforce Development to provide a list of jobs weekly. The proposal also reduces maximum weekly benefit amounts for out-of-work Iowans with three or more dependents. Currently, the more dependents a worker has increases the maximum benefits. Dickey said the measure is aimed at preventing fraud. Mike Owen, Deputy Director of Common Good Iowa, said the bill will weaken Iowa industries that have seasonal unemployment, including construction. Owen, too, said the work search requirements are unnecessary given the state's success getting out-of-work Iowans back on their feet and into new jobs. The percentage of Iowans collecting unemployment who exhausted their benefits dropped to 13.7% last fall, the second lowest in the nation. Unemployment insurance is one of the most important tools we have to keep a strong, resilient workforce and economy, Owen told lawmakers, so this simply adds more work for IWD and it makes receiving unemployment insurance benefits more difficult for people who need it. Senator Todd Taylor, Democrat of Cedar Rapids, declined to sign off on advancing the bill, echoing concerns that the bill needlessly reduces benefits and introduces barriers. Gun safety instruction finds bipartisan support but Bill Allowing Guns in Cars on School Grounds Does Not, by Aaron Murphy. Students would be taught gun safety in Iowa schools, and it would be legal for adults to have a gun in their car while in a school parking lot under separate bills that were considered by state lawmakers Tuesday. Under one proposal, Iowa K-12 students would be given age-appropriate firearm instruction as part of school's emergency operations plan. That proposal was offered by Representative Schuyler Wheeler, a Republican from Hull, who represents a rural northwest Iowa district, and Representative Eiko Abdul-Samad, a Democrat who represents a portion of Des Moines. Abdul-Samad's son was killed in a shooting in 1997 at age 20. The death was ruled an accident. My baby isn't growing up. My baby was shot in the chest and killed by another young man who didn't know a thing about a gun, Abdul-Samad said Tuesday during a legislative hearing on the proposal. So this is reality that we're facing. Abdul Samad said that reality is that guns are in people's homes, they are being brought into schools, and they are being found in public places. Because of that reality, Iowa children should be taught what to do when they discover a gun, he said. We also have to provide a vehicle so that those children who see a gun know what to do, and the best way to do that is to help educate our babies, Abdul Samad said. Under the proposal, students would be allowed to opt out of the instruction. The proposed legislation, House File 73, advanced and is now eligible for consideration by the full House Education Committee. Abdul Samad said House lawmakers have not yet discussed the proposal with lawmakers in the Senate. This is a great step for our kids, said Representative Henry Stone, a Republican from Forest City and a member of the legislative panel that advanced the bill Tuesday. Meanwhile, under a separate bill that also advanced Tuesday, adults would be allowed to have a gun in their car while on the grounds of schools and universities, correction facilities, and casinos. That proposal, House Study Bill 173, did not have bipartisan support. It advanced only with the support of Republicans and is now eligible for consideration by the full House Public Safety Committee. Representative Brian Meyer, a Democrat from Des Moines, said he opposes the bill and considers it a property rights issue. He argued schools, corrections facilities, and casinos should be allowed to regulate whether guns are permitted on their premises. Representative Phil Thompson, a Republican from Jefferson who chairs the House's Public Safety Committee, argued that property rights also apply to drivers. Individual property rights matter as well, he said. Representative Steve Holt, a Republican from Denison, said the bill attempts to balance the rights of schools and jails with individuals' rights. I understand the conflict with the rights of business owners to control what goes on in their parking lot. I actually get that argument. I do, Holt said. We also have the rights of the law abiding citizen who owns that vehicle to think about as well. Iowa Lawmakers advance property and sales tax bill by the Gazette Lee Des Moines Bureau. Iowa Senate Lawmakers said on Tuesday on Tuesday advanced a bill aimed at providing property tax reductions while setting a consistent sales tax rate across the state. The bill, Senate Study Bill 1125, would increase the sales tax from 6% to 7% and eliminate the local option sales tax, a mechanism most local governments use that imposes a one-cent sales tax on top of the state rate. Local governments would receive a portion of the state sales tax revenue to make up for the lost revenue. The tax increase would sunset in 2051 when it would go back to 6%. A portion of the state sales tax also would go to fund the Natural Resources and Outdoor Recreation Trust Fund, an outdoors and water quality fund that was created by a constitutional amendment in 2010 but has remained unfunded. The bill expands a number of property tax credits like the homestead, elderly, and military service property tax credits. It also limits the assessment values for some commercial properties and limits property tax exemptions for some commercial and residential properties. The bill is part of a larger plan to lower tax bills for Iowa property owners, said Senator Dan Dawson, a Republican from Council Bluffs, who chairs the Senate Tax Committee. The committee passed a bill limiting limiting tax levies and assessments on Monday. The first bill was to rehab the levy system and try to deal with assessments coming in as well as to stabilize our levies and actually drive some of our levies down, Dawson said. This bill is actually how do you deliver property tax relief. Representatives for cities and counties who spoke at a subcommittee hearing on the bill expressed concern about the removal of the local option sales tax. Other lobbyists representing environmental and outdoor recreation groups were enthusiastic about funding the Outdoor Trust Fund, which they said was long overdue. Democrats on the subcommittee said they supported some provisions but had reservations about limiting commercial assessments and wanted to see more money going to the Outdoor Trust Fund. Missing Marion Man Found Dead by the Gazette. A Marion man missing since January 16th was found dead Monday by a dog walker in rural Lynn County, police said. Theodore Ted Wolf, 83, was last seen driving a red 2018 Ford Edge titanium. He left his home January 16th without his cell phone and would have been headed toward Lisbon for an appointment. He never arrived at his appointment. Police announced last week they discovered he had stopped that day for gas at a BP station in Walford and was spotted on surveillance video at 4.42 p.m. January 16th heading northbound on Highway 151. Police did not say where Wolf and his car were found, but said it was a significant distance from the road and obscured in some trees. A person walking a dog discovered the body and called authorities. Police said there were no signs of foul play, but did not announce a cause of death. Iowa Democrats introduced Bill to Legalize Marijuana by Aaron Murphy. Marijuana would be legal for recreational use. Previous convictions for nonviolent possession charges would be removed from an individual's criminal record. And the state's medical cannabis program would be expanded under legislation introduced Tuesday by Democratic state lawmakers. The proposal is not likely to become state law anytime soon, since Republican state lawmakers in leadership and Governor Kim Reynolds have in the past opposed any efforts to legalize marijuana in Iowa. Nationally, 21 states have legalized recreational marijuana, including Iowa neighbors Missouri and Illinois. Minnesota state lawmakers are considering legislation to legalize marijuana there. It is time, said Iowa Representative Jennifer Confirst, Democrat of Windsor Heights and leader of the minority party House Democrats. Confirst argued that legalizing marijuana would keep sales tax revenue in Iowa instead of sending it to other states, it would preserve state resources that currently go toward enforcing marijuana laws, and it would increase the quality of life for Iowans with chronic illnesses. She also noted 54% of Iowans said they support legalizing recreational pot in a 2021 Des Moines Register Mediacom Iowa poll. It is across party lines. It is across the place where you live in the state, rural, urban, and suburban, and it is time to do this, Converse said. House Democrats' proposal would tax marijuana sales at 10%, and revenue would be split three ways. 35% to fund scholarships for Iowa college students, 32.5% to mental health services and substance abuse programs, and 32.5% to local law enforcement agencies. Imagine that kind of revenue to Iowa schools, mental health services, and local public safety, said Iowa Representative Lindsey James, Democrat of Dubuque, who introduced the proposal along with Confirst. The state agency that currently regulates alcohol laws would oversee marijuana sales in Iowa under Democrats' proposal. The proposal also would allow Iowans convicted of misdemeanor marijuana possession without any convictions for violent crimes to request the courts to remove the possession conviction from their record. James and Confirst said House Democrats examined legal marijuana programs in other states in order to glean best practices for their proposal. The Republicans who lead the House's public safety and judiciary committees said the proposal will not advance in the House. I have been clear in the past that I do not believe marijuana legalization is the right path forward for Iowa, said Representative Stephen Holt, Republican of Denison, who chairs the Judiciary Committee added Republican Phil, Representative Phil Thompson, a Republican from Jefferson, who chairs the Public Safety Committee. I don't have any interest in moving it without broad Republican support, and I don't think we have that. The Democrats' proposal was still being drafted, they said, Tuesday, and thus does not yet have a bill number. Officials said they expect the bill to be filed today. Lynn Conservation now accepting applications for backpacking trip. Eight students will learn more about the wilderness in Colorado by Brittany J. Miller. The South San Juan Wilderness Area claims more than 150,000 acres of southwestern Colorado, harboring rocky peaks and lush valleys carved long ago by glaciers and volcanoes. Trails weave through mazes of pine, aspen, spruce, and fir trees. Vista points dot the paths, glorious views stretching to the horizon. The mountainous landscape feels worlds away from Iowa's hills that fan like gentle waves across most of the state. But eight high school students will be able to experience the wild and embrace it, through a fully funded two-week backpacking trek offered by Lynn County Conservation. There's absolutely zero wilderness in Iowa, said Kent Rector, manager of Lynn County's Up Uphill Learning Center. For our students to experience an actual federally de- designated wilderness, we have to take them to one and immerse them in it. Not an expert hiker? Don't worry. The ideal applicant is someone who is passionate about exploring wild spaces, but who may not have the opportunity or means to do so. Accepted students will be trained and provided gear. All they need to bring is a willingness to learn, grow, and collaborate. Rector and Linn County Sustainability Director Tamara Marcus will accompany accepted applicants on the trek and support them. An outfitter for Step Outdoors, a Colorado-based company providing outdoor experiences and educational opportunities, also will contribute their expertise as a skilled backpacker and navigator. The adventure is free for the eight accepted applicants. Thanks to financial support, support from NATO Pacama Bittersweet Foundation, Sokol Outfitters, and the Kate's VTech Memorial Foundation, the program will cover all transportation equipment and meals for the students. One of the goals of the program as a whole is really to reach students who otherwise wouldn't have had an opportunity like this, Marcus said. It really is a unique program that is taking into account different barriers that might be presented to different students and trying to address them as best we're able to. The South San Juan Wilderness Trek will take place July 17th to 27th. An informational meeting will take place March 13th at 6.30 p.m. at the Wiki Uphill Learning Center. Applications are due April 22nd. There will be mandatory orientation and training days for accepted applicants. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, February 23rd, 2023, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Arthur W. Zastro Jr., 90, of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, passed away on Monday, February 20, 2023, at Heritage Specialty Care. Visitation will be held from 9 to 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, February twenty fifth at Zion Lutheran Church, located at 201 First Avenue in Hiawatha. Memorial services will follow at 10.30 a.m. on Saturday at the church, with Rev. Dr. Dean F. Rothschild officiating. A private family interment will take place at a later date at Boris Valley Cemetery in Fountain City, Wisconsin. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Marion is assisting the family. Arthur was born on June 8, 1932, in Arcadia, Wisconsin, the son of Arthur Sr. and Louise Kane Exastro. As a young man, he worked as a buttermaker for Fountain City Creamery. After graduation, Arthur served honorably in the United States Army as a chef during the Korean conflict. Upon returning home, he worked as a computer service engineer for various companies, including GE, Philco, Collins Radio, and Decision Data. On July 6, 1957, Arthur was united in marriage to Alice May Ernst at St. Martin's Lutheran Church in Winona, Minnesota. He enjoyed old-time music and playing cards. Arthur was known as the handyman and was always ready to help anyone in need. Memorials in Arthur's memory may be directed to the family. Please share a memory of Arthur at murdochfuneralhome.com under obituaries. Otho H. McDonald Jr., 85, of Columbus Junction, passed away on Tuesday, February 21, 2023, at Lantern Park Specialty Care in Coralville. A funeral service will be held at 1.30 p.m. on Saturday, February 25, at the Snyder and Hollenbaugh Funeral and Cremation Services of Columbus Junction. Burial will be at the Columbus City Cemetery. Visitation will be from 4 until 8 p.m. on Friday, February 24, 2023, at the Funeral Home. A memorial fund has been established at the Funeral Home in memory of Otho. Online condolences may be left for the family at snhfuneralservices.com. Otho was born August 18, 1937, in Olin, Iowa, the son of Otho and Mildred Cook-McDonald. He was united in marriage to Eileen Marie Klein on February 3, 1957, in Elido, Illinois. He worked for Rath for 24 years, Prime Mover for 18 years, and the University of Iowa Hospitals for 10 years. Otho enjoyed camping, stock car racing, and auctioneering. Dorothy Ellen Louise Rockett, 86, of Cedar Rapids, passed away Friday, February 17, 2023, at the Olddorf Hospice House of Mercy in Hiawatha. Memorial services will be held at noon Saturday at Papage Cuba Funeral Home East, 1228 2nd Street Southeast in Cedar Rapids, with Chaplain William Warhover officiating. Burial will follow at Buffalo Cemetery. Visitation will be from 10 a.m. to noon Saturday at the funeral home. Dorothy was born February 9, 1937 in Albert Lee, Minnesota, and grew up in the Decorah, Iowa area. She went to country school and attended Decorah High School. Dorothy married Roger Engelbretson in 1957, and they were later divorced. Dorothy had lived in Cedar Rapids for many years and was employed at Oak Hill Engineering until her retirement. She enjoyed spending time with her grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Dorothy loved playing bingo, going shopping, and doing search words and crossword puzzles. Roger Wolfe, 68, of Lisbon, died peacefully at his home on Sunday, February 19, 2023, following a sudden illness. Funeral service will be held 1 p.m. Friday, February 24th at the Getch Funeral Home Monticello, where friends may call after 11 a.m. Interment will be in the Lisbon Cemetery. Pastor Charles Layton will officiate at the services. You may sign the guest book or leave a condolence at getchonline.com. Access the live service on Friday by clicking the Watch Our Live Services button on the funeral home website. Joe Cermak, 92 of Iowa City, died peacefully with his family by his side on February 13, 2023. For a complete obituary, please visit gayandchia.com. Vernon Leon Hagen, 87 of Newhall, passed away peacefully on Friday, February 17, 2023, at Windsor Manor in Vinton. Funeral services will be held at 10 a.m. Saturday, March 4th, 2023, at the Phillips Funeral Home Chapel. Two Twelve E Sixth Street in Benton, with Reverend Stephen Remp for officiating. Interment will be held at St. John Cemetery in Newhall. Visitation will be held from 9 a.m. until service time at the funeral home. Cards or memorials may be forwarded to Mike Hagen, PO Box 354, Newhall, Iowa 52315. Vernon was born April 13, 1935, in Fairfax, the son of Arthur and Elda Giffaller Hagen. As a child, Vern lived in Newhall, Van Horn, and finally Garrison. He attended school in Newhall until finding work with a local garrison farmer. He met Pearl Nissen, and they were married on November 6, 1955 at St. John Lutheran Church in Keystone. The couple farmed and lived south of Keystone until buying a farm four miles west of Keystone. In 1968, Vern continued to farm and went to work at the Keystone Mercantile. He continued to farm and work in Keystone until selling the farm in 1995 and moving to Newhall. He retired from the mercantile in 1997. Vernon Pearl enjoyed family camping and fishing trips and traveling to Branson for country music shows. James Edward Mote, 84, of Delhi, Iowa, passed away peacefully on Friday, February 17, 2023, of natural causes. A memorial service will be held at a later date. murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids is assisting the family. In lieu of flowers, memorial donations may be directed to St. Jude's Children's Hospital or the Marine Corps League. Semper Fi. Please share a memory of Jim at murdochfuneralhome.com under obituaries. Louis C. Bessler, 87, of Worthington, Iowa, passed away Monday, February 20, 2023 at Acura Healthcare Nursing Home, Cascade, Iowa. Visitation will be held from 9 to 10.30 a.m. on Friday, February 24, 2023 at St. Paul Catholic Church in Worthington, Iowa. A Mass of Christian Burial will be held at 11 a.m. on Friday, February 24, 2023 at St. Paul Catholic Church in Worthington, with burial in the church cemetery. Reverend Gabriel Mensa will officiate. Lewis was born on August 26, 1935, the son of Edwin and Armella Recker-Bessler. He married Janice Feltus on September 5, 1964, in Sand Springs, Iowa. Lewis will be remembered as a hard-working, self-made man. He enjoyed spending his time on the farm. He and Janice enjoyed playing cards and visiting with family and friends. Lewis cherished the memories with his grandchildren and was very proud of each of them. Kramer Funeral Home in Dyersville is assisting the family and information is available at kramerfuneral.com. Memorials may be sent to Kramer Funeral Home, 750 12th Avenue Southwest, Dyersville, Iowa, 52040. Donnelly Sue Armstrong Weaver, 87, of Tipton, Iowa, died unexpectedly of a brain aneurysm at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics on Monday, February 20th, 2023. Visitation will be on Thursday, February 23rd, 2023 at Fry Funeral Home from 4 to 7 p.m. On Friday, February 24th, the First United Church of Christ in Tipton will host a one-hour visitation from 10 to 11 a.m., a funeral service at 11 a.m., and a luncheon that will immediately follow the funeral service. After the luncheon, Donnelly will be laid to rest in the Woodbridge Cemetery. Cards and memorials may be mailed to 1524 Highway 130, Tipton, Iowa, 52772. You are invited to view Donnelly's full obituary and share online condolences at fryfuneralhome.com. Betty Jean Winston Herb, 78, of Cedar Rapids, passed away at the Northbrook Manor Care Center in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, on Sunday, February 5, 2023, surrounded by her loving family. A memorial service will be held from 1 to 4 p.m. Sunday, February 26th, at the Moose Lodge, 1820 West Post Road, Southwest, Cedar Rapids. Betty was born on July 23, 1944, in Quincy, Illinois. She was the daughter of the late Elmer Bryant and Ice Marie Setters Winston. On March 25, 1985, Betty married Donald K. Herb in Cedar Rapids. Betty loved spending time with her friends at the Moose Lodge, enjoyed watching the Chicago Cubs, and her greatest joy was spending time with her children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. Memorial contributions may be directed to the family. Condolences for the family may be left at cedarmemorial.com. Marjorie H. Witte of Mediapolis passed away peacefully on Saturday, February 18th at the Hiawatha Care Center in Cedar Rapids. Born November 1, 1932, she was the daughter of William and Alice Ibus of Sperry, Iowa. Marjorie loved sports and going to basketball and volleyball games at Mediapolis with her friends Dorothy and Hartzell Hilliard. She especially loved watching her great grandsons sporting events in Cedar Rapids. Marjorie married Lemoyne Bear Whitty in 1952. They made their home with his parents for several years. At that time, Marjorie worked as school secretary for the Mediapolis School District. After moving to the Blue Star Family Farm, she made sure everyone knew that she didn't care to operate farm machinery. Instead, she had a very large garden of tomatoes, green beans, and an acre of sweet corn. She would make sure to can and freeze enough to share with family and friends. In 1960, Marjorie began a long career as plant personnel secretary at the then-new United States Gypsum Company and remained working there until retiring. According to Marjorie's wishes, a visitation will be held at the Snyder and Hollenbaugh Funeral Home in Mediapolis, Iowa on Friday, February 24th from 4 to 7 p.m. A graveside service will be held at the Kassuth Cemetery at 1 p.m. on Saturday, February 25, 2023. Online condolences may be left for the family at snhfuneralservice.com. Robert Bob Hora, 88, of Morley, Iowa, died Sunday, February 19, 2023, with his family by his side. Per his wishes, there will be a private graveside funeral service at Green Center Cemetery, rural Morley, at a later date. Please visit getchonline.com to share your thoughts, memories, stories, and condolences with Bob's family. Robert Ivan Hora was born in Morley on November 21, 1934, the son of Joe and Alice Tenley Hora. He graduated from Morley High School in May of 1952. On October 17, 1954, he married Betty L. Holtz at Wayne Zion Lutheran Church, rural Monticello. Bob worked as a carpenter, serving the Jones County area his whole life. Virginia Bell Brandenburg Conklin, 100, of Strawberry Point, formerly of Alpha and West Union, died Friday, February 10, 2023. Visitation will be 1 to 3 p.m. Saturday, March 4, 2023, at Redeemer Lutheran Church, 407 West Bradford, West Union, Iowa. Family Celebration of Life plans are pending for the summer of 2023. Virginia was born December 31, 1922, near Arlington, Iowa, the third of 11 children, to Marion Reuben Ruby and Vera Lickis Brandenburg. Virginia was a loving wife and mother, a dedicated farm wife on the Conklin Century Farm for 44 years, and with Dale enjoyed dancing, camping, fishing, and walking. Her generosity and acts of service have been appreciated by many. In lieu of flowers, donations may be made to Bethel Cemetery, Hawkeye, Redeemer Lutheran Church of West Union, Open Hands Food Pantry of West Union, or the charity of your choice. Michael Dean Prouty, 71, of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, passed away Monday, February 20th, 2023. A visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. on Friday, February 24th, at Murdoch Glenwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. A funeral service will take place at 10 a.m. on Saturday, February 25th, at the funeral home. Michael was born October 6, 1951, in Cedar Rapids, the son of Daniel and Marilyn Johnson Prouty. He graduated from Marion High School, class of 1969. Michael was united in marriage to Barbara Graves in 1972. The couple later divorced but always remained friends. He worked as a union pipe fitter for over 40 years. Michael was a member of Local 125 Plumbers and Pipe Fitters. Michael loved slot car racing and won many trophies. He enjoyed fixing things and tinkering around in the garage restoring his favorite 1970 GMC pickup. Michael loved taking it to shows, doing burnouts, and cruising the avenue. Memorials may be directed to his three daughters. Please share a memory at MurdochFuneralHome.com. Mindy Jo Natty Hadges, 65, of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, passed away Sunday, February 19, 2023, at her home, surrounded by her family. Visitation, 4-7 p.m. Thursday, February 23rd at the Legacy Center at murdoch Linwood in Cedar Rapids, with Triseon beginning at 6.30 p.m. Funeral Mass, 10.30 a.m. Friday, February 24th, 2023 at St. John the Baptist Greek Orthodox Church, Cedar Rapids. Burial, Linwood Cemetery, Cedar Rapids. To view the full obit and share a memory of Mindy, please go to MurdochFuneralHome.com under Obituaries. Joshua Dean Holtz, 48, of Manchester, Iowa, passed away on Friday, February 17th at Regional Medical Center with his family by his side. A celebration of life will be held from 2 to 5 p.m. on Saturday, March 25th at the Delaware County Community Center, Manchester. Bowden Camp Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Manchester is in charge of arrangements. Josh was born on December 31st, 1974 in Manchester, the son of Dean Holtz and Pamela Holm. He graduated from West Delaware High School in 1993 and went on to attend Kirkwood Community College. Josh married Laura Ristler on March 16, 1996, in Manchester. Seven children were born to this union. He worked with his father through Iowa Technologies to bring technological support and enhancement to customers across the tri-state area. Josh was a member of the Golden Congregational Church, past president of the Maquoketa Valley Athletic Boosters, and founder of the Wildcat Attack Volleyball Club. Memorials in Josh's memory may be directed to the family. Please share a memory of Josh at murdochfuneralhome.com. Stephen L. Kent, 64, of Cedar Rapids, peacefully went home to be with the Lord while in the presence of his family at his house on Friday, February 17th. A memorial service celebrating Steve's life will be held at 1 p.m. Monday, February 27th at Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories with Reverend Rick Gale officiating. Visitation will be from 3 to 6 p.m. Sunday, February 26th at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home. Stephen Lee Kent was born May 8, 1958 in Cedar Rapids, son of Robert and Patricia Kent. Steve graduated from Jefferson High School and attended Kirkwood Community College. On August 8, 1981, Steve married Donna Minor in Cedar Rapids. Steve worked as a baker for Hy-Vee for over 40 years. Steve was gifted in craftsmanship, working construction part-time for numerous years. Steve also worked part-time at First Assembly of God in the technical department. Steve loved running sound and creating amazing set designs for the sanctuary. In recent years, Steve worked part-time for Benchmark, Inc., enjoying his time there as their building maintenance technician. Steve made friends everywhere he went and loved each person for who they were. Earl Edward Iban of Cedar Rapids passed away quietly at home on Monday, February 20th. Earl was born in Ryan, Iowa in 1931 to Fred and Margaret Vivian Iben. After high school, Earl enlisted in the U.S. Army on November 20, 1951, and served as private first class during the Korean War. Upon his return to Cedar Rapids in 1953, Earl began working at Cherry Burrell Company, where he met his future wife, Irene D. Vates of El Dorado, Iowa. Shortly thereafter, he began work for Iowa National Mutual Insurance Company, married Irene in February 1959, and relocated to Greensboro, North Carolina, where his two sons, Leland and Jeffrey, were born. Upon returning to Cedar Rapids, they had their third child, Sarah. Eventually, Earl and Irene went their separate ways. Earl met Nancy Heverlow and fell head over heels. Earl and Nancy spent the next 30 years together attending family gatherings, grandchildren's sporting events, and, after his retirement from United Fire and Casualty, began wintering for 16 years in sunny Arizona. Earl and Nancy enjoyed golfing and watching Hawkeye sports as often as they could. The day before he passed, Earl commented how blessed he was to have Nancy by his side for so many years. Upon Earl's final request, a private burial service for the immediate family is to be held in the near future in Cedar Rapids. That concludes today's obituaries. Moving on to the Insight opinion page. Today there is one letter to the editor. It is from Richard Pahorsky of Cedar Rapids, and the title is Column Replaces History with Bias. As an amateur historian, I wish to take issue with a guest column in the Gazette on February 15th. Republicans are no longer wide awakes. Marty Bowler claims to be a historian. I suggest he needs a history lesson on the Republican Party. Bowler claims the Republican Party was birthed in Pittsburgh in 1856. Fact, the Republican Party was founded in 1854. The name was proposed at its first public meeting held on March 20, 1854 in Ripon, Wisconsin. The name of the party is generally attributed to a reference to Thomas Jefferson's Democratic Republican Party from the early 1800s. This group grew from a general dissatisfaction with the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1850. The party platform called for opposition to the expansion of slavery in the territories, not the abolition of slavery where it currently existed. Bowler also states that the first national convention was in Chicago in 1860. Fact, the first Republican National Convention was held in Jackson, Michigan on July 6, 1854. I'm afraid Marty Bowler's guest column displays his bias against the present Republican Party rather than his historical knowledge. Again, that is a letter to the editor from Richard Pahorsky of Cedar Rapids in Today's Gazette. Here is today's guest column on the editorial page. It is by Joe Murphy, who is the president of the Iowa Business Council. A Foundation for Economic Opportunity. With the first month of 2023 concluded, the Iowa Business Council's state legislative priorities are beginning to take shape. The IBC is a nonpartisan business association whose members represent some of Iowa's largest employers. In total, the 21 members of the IBC account for more than 150,000 employees and more than $9 billion in payroll across Iowa. In 2023, our state legislative priorities are aligned around our founding mission to enhance economic vitality for all Iowans. In total, our priorities reflect a path toward continued economic competitiveness and future economic opportunity. While IBC priorities include long-standing and traditional business policy items, such as increasing our competitiveness in the tax code, we also take great care to consider what other areas the IBC should engage in that may surprise policy observers. For the first time in our organization's history, the IBC has elevated mental health as a top legislative priority. Our board recognized over the course of the pandemic that the mental health and wellness of Iowans should be an issue business leaders engage in as we work toward a healthy, thriving, and growing workforce in Iowa. Specifically, the IBC is part of a larger cohort of nonprofit stakeholders across the state, working to identify policies to increase the supply of mental health professionals while simultaneously exploring innovative programs to recruit and retain practitioners. Examples include joining national mental health compacts, enhancing student loan repayment programs, and exploring additional public funding mechanisms. The IBC is committed to working with the entire General Assembly and the governor in a nonpartisan way on efforts that increase our ability to become more competitive and create opportunities for Iowans. As we look to grow our total population and increase our economic expansion, the IBC's legislative priorities provide a comprehensive way forward to future achievement. 2023 IBC legislative priorities include Competitive Tax Policy The IBC will focus on the recent income tax reform legislation to ensure competitive tax policies extend to all types of Iowa businesses. The IBC also will work to make Iowa's property tax system more competitive. Mental Health The IBC recognizes the great strides the state has taken to increase mental health investment and services in recent years. This year, the IBC will work to capitalize on this momentum and partner with a broad coalition of stakeholders to work toward increasing the supply of mental health professionals in Iowa while also exploring public funding mechanisms that will enhance mental health service and quality. Tort reform. The IBC supports overall tort reform efforts, including the medical malpractice caps and reasonable limitations on non-economic damages in civil cases signed into law last Thursday. Workforce initiatives. The availability of a talent pipeline is critical for long-term economic prosperity in Iowa. The IBC will continue to advocate for initiatives that grow Iowa's workforce, including work-based learning programs, child care, and housing. And that concludes today's guest column. It was by Joe Murphy, the president of the Iowa Business Council. Moving on to sports, our first item is about Iowa basketball. It's titled Shaking Off the Cold. Iowa has shot miserably from outside in its last four games away from Carver by Michael Loss. The Iowa men's basketball team was on the road again Tuesday afternoon, hoping to put Northwestern in the rearview mirror. Wisconsin is the closest Big Ten neighbor to Iowa City, and the Hawkeyes bust to basketball games there. That could pose a dicey situation for after tonight's Iowa-Wisconsin game because the weather forecast for Madison called for a blustery late night with freezing rain and sleet. We'll deal with that at the time, Iowa coach Fran McCaffrey said Tuesday morning. The only thing about the trip that matters to the Hawkeyes until the trip home is how they play against the Badgers. Less than two days after getting home from an ugly 80-60 loss at Northwestern Sunday night, Iowa needs to refocus if it is to avoid another hole in the road. Reasons for Sunday's loss were clear. The Hawkeyes were 3-24 of 24 from deep against the Wildcats and are 16-72, of 72, 22.2%, over their last four road games. We were 20 for 30 from twos, McCaffrey said. We missed open threes. It wasn't anything they did defensively. It was turnovers, 15, and we made defensive mistakes. We were not clicking defensively at all. Iowa is 9-7 in the Big Ten, but just 2-6 on the road. If the Hawkeyes are to finish in the top four of the conference's standings, they almost surely must win at Wisconsin or at Indiana next Tuesday. The Badgers just need to win, period. They're on the right side of the NCAA tournament bubble at 7-9 in the Big Ten and 15-11 overall, according to garden-variety bracketologists, but barely. Rutgers won at Kohl Center last Saturday, 58-57. Wisconsin can ill afford another such loss. Defensively, Iowa is a movable object, going up against a stoppable force. The Hawkeyes easily are last in Big Ten games in field goal percentage defense, allowing opponents to shoot 49.1% from the field. However, Wisconsin easily is last in field goal percentage at just 40.5%. Four of the Badgers' top five scorers are shooting under 40% in Big Ten contests. Wisconsin is Wisconsin. You've seen the way the Badgers play for the last quarter century. It isn't pretty, but it has worked. Iowa has to be good Iowa to beat the Badgers. If not, it's really going to be a long trip home. And you can see tonight's game at 8.07 p.m. on the Big Ten Network. It's live-streamed on Fox Sports, and uh, it will broadcast on the Hawkeye Radio Network, including WMT, KKRQ, and KXIC. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, February 23, 2023. I'm your reader, Janet Griffith. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.